to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that your Spirit would make clear to us the meaning of this text, that your inspired and errant word would guide us and lead us in every area of our lives, and that we together would give you the praise and the glory for it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. On September 1st, Texas law changes. You might have heard of this. We have what are called concealed carry laws. And at 1201, September 1st, those laws change and we move over to what's called permitless carry or constitutional carry. Now, 20 other states have laws like Texas will have. And I could have picked something less controversial, but I have everybody's attention uh, now. And what I'm demonstrating for you in this change that happens through the concealed carry law changing over to constitutional carry, in some ways it relates to this passage because we can say the old law is dead. At 1201 on September 1st, the old law is not going to be in force. There is a new law And what happens when the law changes? Relationships change, don't they? I mean, maybe in your own family, your relationship has changed because this is a controversial law. If you're involved in law enforcement, you have certain beliefs and ideas about this law and the pros of it and the cons of it. This sudden change brings a different relationship into play with respect to the old law and the new law. Likewise, the Apostle Paul picks an analogy here, marriage in particular, and he shows how the death in a marriage leads to a new law, a new relationship to the law. And likewise, we are shown in this passage that the believer's relationship to the law changes through the death of another, in particular, the death of Jesus Christ. His crucifixion welcomes us into a new relationship with God, not through the law, but a new relationship through his death. If you look at verse 4, we read, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. How have we done that? Through the body of Christ. The phraseology used in that verse, body of Christ, is rare for the Apostle Paul and rare in Romans. And it is a particular pointing to the crucifixion as this time. Christ's death brings a death to the law and a change in our relationship with God, no longer relating through the law to God, but relating to the law through the one who fulfilled the law, Jesus Christ. And this change then changes our relationship, and this passage explains how that change happens. And there is some complexity to this uh, passage for sure, 
But it is through the death of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, that Christians are placed in a new relationship with God. The old law is dead through the death of Christ, and the new law of the Spirit is in effect, all because of the death of Christ and our union with him that frees us from the law. That's my first point, is that Christ's death frees us from the law. Now, that might make you nervous, because that sounds like anarchy, doesn't it? To be free from the law. And there are two errors that this passage avoids. Anarchy, we know that doesn't work. Why? Well, we saw these autonomous zones pop up, and how'd that work out for people? Not well at all. So we know that being free from the law does not mean that we are anarchists. Being free from the law also does not mean that the law doesn't have value. And that's what verse 12 shows us here. So Christ's death frees us from the law, but we're not talking about anarchy here. Instead, we are talking about moving from have to obey to want to obey all through the power of the one we are united to, Jesus Christ. Well, how does the law free us? There are three ways discussed here. There's an outline in your bulletin if that helps you to follow along. The first way we are free from the law is the law's condemnation. This is in verses 1 through 3. This analogy that the Apostle Paul selects is the analogy of marriage, and we find out Look at the end of verse 3. If her husband dies, she is what? Free from the law. She won't be called an adulteress. She's not breaking the law of marriage. Death sets her free from the law of marriage, and she is not an adulteress. He brings that analogy out to show how death changes a relationship. And so we are free from the law's condemnation. Now, this is hinting at, pointing at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The good news is in Romans 8, 1, what does that verse tell us? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus is to be united with Him. It means that we place our faith in Christ, that His perfect record of keeping the law becomes ours by faith because we can't keep it on our own. It also means that through his death, he pays the penalty that we owed to God. So we are united to him, and thus we are free from the law's condemnation. Free from the law's condemnation. How else are we set free from the law? The second way is the captivity of the law. We read in verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Well, how does the law take us captive? The law is something that shames us and shows us all our imperfections and inability to keep the law. We can be captive to the law in terms of the law's shame, the disappointment in our own attempts to keep the law, chains us, takes us captive with this shame, disappointment, and the impossible standard that we fail at. 
You see, the law puts us into an unworkable relationship because we are not perfect and we can't keep it perfectly. And so the law takes us captive that way. The law was never meant as a means of salvation because we could never keep it perfectly. It's only through Christ that we are saved. So the law takes us captive and Christ's death frees us from the condemnation of the law, its captivity, and then I needed a C word, so the con of the law, you notice that. We are free from the con of the law. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? Have you, have you ever been called on your cell phone and offered a car warranty? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? I'm interested to talk to you if you ever took someone up on that and how that went for you. You see, the law attempts to con us, to, to scam us, to say, well, if you only keep the law perfectly or you only keep it well enough, then you will be saved. The law cons us because our hearts are tragically broken and we use the law as an attempt to make our situation, our relationship right with God. We think if we can only keep it well enough, everything will be okay between us and God. And what we are doing there, and this is how the law cons us, we are working as we keep the law to gain that which God has already given us in Christ. Think about it for a moment. How often are we, and have you ever caught yourself doing this, attempting to do something for God in order to gain that which he has already promised to give you in Christ? In Christ, we have all things. We are united to him. That goes back to the beginning of chapter 6. What is union with Christ? It is the doctrine that by faith, what Christ has done becomes mine. And it is mine, not because of my performance, but the law cons us, it tricks us. It says, you can better your relationship with God if you would only perform well enough and do well enough. Remember, a great shift happens in Romans. Turn back to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. A great shift happens uh, there in Romans 3, 21, where we read... where we read Romans 3, 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, it has been revealed apart from the law. Apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. And just to review for you real quick, the righteousness of God is his attribute. It is his characteristic, his holiness, his goodness, his justice, his truth, his beauty the righteousness of God, that he does all things well. But it is as well, not just an attribute, the righteousness of God in Romans is descriptive of his rightness, that he does all things well, that redemptive history will show and display the greatness of God in doing everything well. And so this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Well, who do the law and the prophets bear witness to? Jesus Christ. He who kept the law perfectly for us and then paid the penalty we owed to God for the sins we committed. He has freed us from the condemnation of the law, from the captivity of the law, and he has freed us from the con, the scam, that you can improve your relationship with God if you would only keep the law well enough. He has freed us from this cycle. So we are free from the law in those three ways. Now I have a little visual representation for you because this is how the law functions in our life. Uh, hopefully you can read that. It says, it, it, it's a new law. Do not touch pulpit. Here's how, yeah, we are. Here's how the law functions in our life. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying, essentially. Is that as soon as you see this commandment, this law, what is it you suddenly want to do? You want to touch this pulpit. And in fact, you know, maybe after the service today, someone will um, come up and... Uh, just to say that you did it. You see, the law awakens something in our heart that is tragically broken. It is rebelliousness. She looked at the tree and saw and desired that the fruit was good to eat. God said, you can eat of any tree of the garden except one. And which one did they pursue? You see, there is something in our heart that suddenly, you, you have never wanted to touch this pulpit before in your life. And suddenly, what does the law do? It stimulates something in us. And that's what the Apostle Paul, the point he makes here in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And he goes on to say, the very commandment right here that promised life proved death to me. You see, the law will never save us. No amount of pursuing the law will ever, in and of itself, rescue us from our own hearts. You see, the problem is not the law. Ultimately, the problem is our sinful hearts, which look at the law, and it stimulates that rebelliousness in us, doesn't it? I mean, wasn't that 2020 summarized? Rebelliousness. That as laws, restrictions, anything came out, it stimulated in people the sudden desire to rebel. To do that which was not even in their own self-interest. When we see the law, the law stimulates in us something, namely rebelliousness. And that rebelliousness, and here's the application for us, it has to be evaluated. It, we need the wisdom of God, and we need discernment 
to know when the law stimulates something in us, when the law stimulates rebelliousness, what do we do? Do we just accept it and rebel? Or are we able to be mature in Christ and to evaluate our own actions and our own reaction to know where the law is stimulating this broken part of our heart that Jesus still needs to fix? It is the process of sanctification, of course, and it is a lifelong process where we, by grace, grow in our character. So when you feel those moments of rebelliousness, kids, when your parents tell you something to do and suddenly you don't want to do it, you need to go to the Lord. Go to God. Ask Him for guidance. Discern. Adults, you need to discern. What are you rebelling against and why? How has the law stimulated something in you that was there even all the way back at the garden? And so we need the wisdom of God. We need His guidance to lead us. If you turn over to uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, this is exactly the dynamic Paul talks about when he writes to the Colossians in Colossians 2, uh, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body. Here's the kicker. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No law changes someone's heart. Only God can do that, and he has through Christ. You see, no amount of regulations or laws make us more Christ-like. Instead, we have to recognize the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us, in our hearts, in the fact that a law comes out and we suddenly want to rebel. It shows that God is still needing to purify our hearts and work on our hearts that we might humbly submit, read Romans 13, humbly submit to the authorities in our life. Well, does this mean that the law is worthless? And that's the next point here in this passage. Is the law worthless then? Is there no value to the law? Should we just give up the law if it takes us captive, if it condemns us if it tricks us and cons us. And what we find is there is actually good things that come from the law. We are freed from the law, but what do we do? What do we do? And I'll look at verses 4, 6, and 12 that show us that now that we've been freed from the law, what do we do? Well, first, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. This is in verse 6, and part of this service in the Spirit takes us back to verse 4. So verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, 
Why has that happened? Look in verse 4. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. To what purpose? In order that we may bear fruit for God. So this idea of bearing fruit for God, that our lives would be transformed to look more and more like the character of Jesus Christ. And what does that look like except those fruits of the Spirit that are listed for us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. What should our life look like now that we've been freed from the law and the law's condemnation, captivity, and conning? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Why is it against such things there is no law? Two things. One is no law can be made to enforce the absence of those qualities. There is nothing powerful enough to block the expression of those qualities, but as well... Against such things there is no law. There is no law that can be made that can stimulate those things. Only the Spirit can do that. And it belongs to the Spirit to stimulate this fruit, to grow this fruit in our lives. So that's one of the purposes to be in this new way of the Spirit is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And then look in verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Why? So that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You know what really holds people back in their growth with God? What holds people back in their spiritual growth? Of course it's sin. But what holds people back is their past experience. In other words, when we talk about being in the new way of the Spirit, there's something in us, just like I put that sign up that said, don't touch the pulpit. When I talk about the new way of the Spirit, there's something in us that says, no, no, thank you. I, I prefer the old way. And that's our experience talking. And what that is, oftentimes our experience is sometimes painful and attached with it is this emotional power that holds us as prisoners to our old experience. And what do I mean by that? Well, all of us have past experiences of being taught things from the Bible. And some of those things are good and some might not be. And whether they're good or not is truly a matter of whether they can be drawn from the Scripture. But what happens is when you run into, and I'm speaking to the adults here, when you run into something that is different from your experience, we have a stubborn tendency to throw it out. It doesn't match our experience. Maybe the error that we have been taught was by someone who was near and dear to us. And maybe we loved that person and we loved, and so we look back on our life and we want to go with the old way. But the new way of the Spirit is an invitation, just as we evaluate our rebelliousness, it's an invitation to evaluate your past experience. This is how people change. We have to let go of our old experience and embrace the new way of the Spirit, the way of being united to Christ and the power drawn not from the obligations of the law, 
but the power drawn because the law was fulfilled on our behalf. And Christ has set us free and given us the resurrection power to obey him, not because we have to obey, but because we delight to obey the one who has given us every spiritual blessing in him. So experience can hold us back. We can refuse the new way of the Spirit. Now think about in your own life, the longer you have walked with Christ, sometimes the slower that growth is because it's a function of our past experience. Think about someone who is new to Christ. Maybe they don't have a lot of experience yet, and they grow by leaps and bounds. And so there is an openness to the Spirit that sometimes those of us who have walked with Christ for a time don't have, but that's the very thing we need to grow with Him, an openness to the new way of the Spirit that He might reveal Himself to us and we might walk in that newness of life. That's not just for someone who is new to Christ. That's for all of us, the new way of the Spirit and the change that Christ brings in our life. It can be painful at times to let go of that experience, but that is what we are called to as God's people, having been set free from the law. And then also, not only are we set free from the law that we might bear fruit for God and might walk in this new way of the Spirit, as well we're called to regard the law biblically, to, to have a regard for the law. And this is in verse 12, because you see, there is the temptation to throw the law out, to say, well, the law is bad, and to throw it out. Yet we know that the law reveals the holy character of God. The law convicts us of our sin. The law restrains evil. The law points out our sin to us as it points out the perfect character of God. And the law leads us in the way we ought to go. And so there are beautiful purposes with regard to the law. The law is good. That's what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. To use the law lawfully is to understand that the law was not meant to save us, as if, if we got an A-plus on our law report card, we would be saved. That's not the intention of the law. Instead, the law is meant to point us to Christ, both in our lack of righteousness and in the perfection of His. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verse 10. That's what this, this point is made in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law points to Him. He is the purpose of the law the end of it, the fulfillment of it. And so the law has its purpose in the life of a believer. Look in verse 12, uh, back in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And that's a call for us to rightly, biblically regard the law. You know, sometimes when people hear the gospel, and they really begin to understand, no, Christ did it all. 
When Christ on the cross uttered those words, it is finished, it really was finished. And we, as God's people, don't contribute to our salvation. Instead, it is freely given to us by grace. What happens if you understand that truth? There is the temptation to say, well, what I do doesn't matter. But you see in this passage that what you do does matter. That in point of fact, regarding the law in this way as holy, righteous, and good is important for our growth with God. So we, as God's people, are set free from the condemnation of the law, its captivity, its conning us. It does not mean the law is worthless. As the law points us to serving in the new way of the Spirit, bearing fruit for God regarding His law and understanding that it reveals His character and our need for Christ. And that's what you heard earlier in our worship service. You, you heard read uh, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 for our assurance of grace, because the law is good, righteous, and holy. So I've shown you this morning, I hope, that the new way of life we are called to pursue is a life of being set free from the law's condemnation, that we are enabled to walk with Christ with the power of the Spirit, forming in us the fruits of the Spirit and giving testimony and witness to the very character of Jesus Christ. We are set free, in other words, not to do what we want, but to do what he wants in our union with Christ to bear fruit, to walk in the new way of the Spirit, and to recognize God's law as good. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this passage of Scripture, which helps us and reminds us of the tragic fallenness of our own heart, that we together as your people desperately need your grace, that left to our own devices, we would think that we could earn our own way to heaven. Even in the midst of that absurdity, we still deceive ourselves and rebel against your good and holy ways. And so we ask that you would so work in our lives that we might regard your law rightly, and that we together as your people might continue to be formed and shaped more and more after the image of the one who has rescued us from sin and death. And we pray in his name. Amen. Take a moment now.